0: God, as we come to your word, we want to um, submit ourselves to you. Um, We don't just want to sit through uh, words that are spoken. Uh, We don't just want to uh, have no interaction with you, the living God. God, we realize that you have spoken through your word, and you speak through um, this thing called preaching, where it's just explaining and exposing your word, that you, you in fact speak to us. And so God, we pray that we would not tune out your word this morning, that you would expose our hearts, that you would bring our hearts to a place of worship, of wonder, that you would uh, allow us to live a life, desirous to honor your word in our lives, uh, that we would wrestle with questions in this world, that we would um, ask hard questions of your word, but we know that you're a great God to provide the answer. Your word says that um, if any of us lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who will give abundantly. And so, God, we ask you this morning to give us your wisdom as we hear your word, that you would speak to our hearts, make us wise, and cause our lives to bring glory to you as we um, live your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Did Jesus come to bring world peace? why doesn't Jesus or God stop war? How is it that families can be so disrupted by issues? Why are there so many divisions in churches? You know, all of these questions arise because isn't Jesus supposed to be the Prince of Peace? Hasn't Jesus come as the Prince of Peace? Perhaps we have it wrong. Perhaps... He's not it. Perhaps we've missed him. Why does all this carry on when Jesus is called the Prince of Peace and is anticipated to bring some sort of peace? Why is there so much conflict in our hearts, in our families, in the world? Why is there conflict when there's this Prince of Peace? Is he not doing his job? This morning we're going to hear from God's Word a startling passage. And then ask in the end, well, is there any hope of harmony? And if so, what must be done to that end? Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. And as you do, I'm going to tell you what some of the people expected in the coming Messiah. As you turn to Luke 12, uh, the people anticipating this Messiah, anticipating Jesus, were to expect this sort of Savior. Psalm 46 anticipates this sort of Savior. He says... He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. That's what they were looking for. Or they were looking for, this is all they could see forward is, okay, when the Messiah comes, when this Prince of Peace comes, when the Savior comes, this is what things are going to look like. This is what harmony is going to look like in his reign. Here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 11. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow shall and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy In all of my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Just this complete and utter harmony. Not just in uh, the individual person, not just in nations, but even among the created order. A harmony where a a toddler could play with a viper and is not harmed. That's the sort of harmony pictured as, as the Old Testament prophets would look forward. They say, okay... This Messiah is coming, what do we expect him to bring? Well, no more war. We expect that, so we anticipate and we long for it. We also anticipate this creation harmony. So then it's announced, well, the Prince of Peace will come. And now Christ has come. There's still war. And the lion will bite your head off if you think you can get friendly with it. So what happened? What's missing? And it's the difference between the understanding of the first advent and the second advent. At Christmas we use this term advent. It really just means coming or arrival. So Jesus came, his first advent. And then his second advent is when he will come again. So you have to understand how the Old Testament prophets viewed it. If you have ever been to the Rockies and you look at the mountains, you may think that they're all side by side. You think they're all at the same time and the same space to me because that's how they appear to you. When in reality, if you went to the side, there might be a hundred miles between the two that you thought were just side by side from this angle. So the Old Testament prophets, they would look forward and they would say, okay, this is what the Messiah is going to be. So they'd see a mountain peak and a mountain peak. Say, okay, they're side by side. We're just waiting for one thing to happen. There's some mountains, it's got, it looks differently, but this is one event. So they looked forward to the coming Messiah and they expected world peace. And they expected a creation harmony. But what they couldn't see was the side angle, which we now have the advantage of. Because we're in between those two mountains. So we can look back and see one mountain over there and look forward and see another there. We've experienced the first advent and we see the second advent coming. But if you're on the other side of the mountain, you only see one. And so that's how the Old Testament viewed the coming Messiah. They didn't necessarily understand, although it was so clear. And it's interesting because there was a Jewish rabbi who labored over the Old Testament just to try to reconcile this, to go, this makes no sense. Because in the Old Testament, we see a suffering Messiah. A Savior who will die, who will be humble, who will be with his people. But then we also see this, uh, this Messiah who is to come and conquer. And to rule with a heavy hand and to be judge. And So this Jewish rabbi, he had to conclude it must be two Messiahs. Because they are so drastically different. That definitely cannot be one, because he's thinking about one time. When in reality, Christ will come again in his second advent, and he will come as judge. And so their perspective is kind of limited. It's kind of at a disadvantage. And so, Jesus asks this question, Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? I love that he asks that question. Because, obviously, he knows the hearts, right? So if he was here, he would be saying, do you think that I don't care for you? Or do you think that whatever? He knows your hearts. He knows your thoughts. And so he asks this question. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? Because he knows what the people were expecting of him. He knows why they're so confused, why they're so adamant that you can't be the Savior, you can't be the Messiah, he's supposed to rule us, there's supposed to be no more wars. And so he says, do you expect that I'm to bring peace on earth? That's why I came when he came on earth. Luke chapter 12, look at verse 49. 49 through 53 says this, this is God's word speaking, Christ speaking, he says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish that it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No. I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? It's a shocking passage. Especially when consider his answer. Firstly, the answer is No. I did not come to bring peace on earth. That's shocking. Especially when we consider the Christmas season. When we sing songs of peace on earth, right? And we anticipate this Prince of Peace. When the angels were announcing to the shepherds of Jesus' arrival, the baby in the manger that they were going to find, the glory that they sang of was peace on earth. They sang the song. A multitude of angels sang the song, Peace on Earth. So then, why is it that Jesus answers this so differently? Do you think that I've come to bring peace? And he says, no, I haven't. And beyond not just bringing peace, he says, I've actually come to bring division. Wow, what? What kind of Jesus does that sound like? They're like, I thought the Jesus we're supposed to present is this loving, kind, accepting, tolerant, welcome everybody, loves everybody, wants peace. That's the sort of Jesus that we try to picture on our Christmas cards, right? With the long flowing hair and everybody loves them. But he's the one who says, I did not come this time to bring peace as you are expecting it, anticipating it. No, he says, I came to bring division. The way Matthew puts it in his gospel says, uh, Jesus asks, uh, do not think, he just says it, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own households. So it's interesting. Because I love 1 Corinthians 14.33. says, For God is not a God of confusion. And for some of us, this is confusing. Angels announce peace on earth. Isaiah announced that this one to come, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, was to come in the form of the child. This is him. So 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of confusion. So how is it then that Jesus says this? Want to know the end of 1 Corinthians 14.33? God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Kind of ironic the way we're thinking of it this morning. Because it's based on that idea of God being this peace that is causing us some confusion. But instead, to avoid the confusion, we consider the two advents of Jesus. The advent we celebrate every year at Christmas time. The advent that gets the most of our attention is interesting. Why doesn't the second Advent get just as much attention, just as much celebration, just as much anticipation? It's meant to. The first Advent, and us celebrating the first Advent, is supposed to create a longing in us for his second coming. How much we anticipate Christmas Day coming. Everything we do to prepare for It's supposed to be just a hint, just a glimpse of how we're supposed to prepare for his second coming what happens is when you mix the two or you make them one or you have some unmet expectations disappointment always comes with unmet expectations but expectations have to be made clear that's one of the things I learned early on in my marriage was there's going to be disappointment if there's not been clear expectations made if I've not communicated my expectations or Charlotte's not communicated her expectations to me we're going to have issues Uh, like, she expects me to respond a certain way when she gives me a gift. But she never verbalized it. So I get a gift, and I say, that's nice. Set it aside, and I move on to my coffee. She's disappointed. She's sad. She thinks, oh, he hates it. He hates me. What's going on? And it's because she never communicated. And I told her this. I said, it sounds dumb, but you kind of just have to say to me, when I give you a gift, I want you to smile and be happy and clap and make a big deal for 10 minutes, and then I'll be happy, you know. We don't communicate that. You and I, every single one of us, have these expectations in our hearts of our spouses, of our children, of our neighbors, of the people, of me. You have all these unmet expectations in your heart right now, and it would sound dumb to communicate them, but it would actually solve a lot of problems, and it would have a lot less disappointment in everybody's life if you could just say, when I do this, when I shake your hand, I expect you to look at my eyes, so that when I'm shaking your hand and you're looking the other way, I'm not disappointed. Right? And so we have all expectations all the time. Until they are made clear, things are chaos. You think about a kid, right? So a kid goes running a mud puddle. They run in the house right across your clean floor onto a carpet. And you're yelling at them, get your boots off. What's wrong with you? Well, they didn't know. They did not know that you expected them to stop at the door and take their boots off. right? So the next time they'll know because now they're in trouble. But if you just made your expectations clear at the front, it will be a lot better. So the same thing happens. Disappointments happen when we don't have clear expectations. So what do we expect of Jesus? So there's these people who are expecting something of Jesus, and they're not communicating it. They're not vocalizing it. They're not verbalizing it, but he knows their thoughts. He knows their hearts. And so he says to them, did you expect that I was going to come and stop all wars? They're like, whoa, how did you know that we were expecting that? We're glad you've communicated our hearts, oh God. But he's exposing their expectations because he sees they're disappointed. They're disillusioned. They're disbelieving. Why? Because of their expectation. So he sees to the heart of it this unmet expectation. Thinking about not just what the Jews expected. This is what they expected. World peace. But some people today, what do they expect when they hear... You talk about, oh, the Prince of Peace has come. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's have peace on my house as a decoration. What do they expect? What do you think they expect? They also expect peace on earth and goodwill to men. They expect that wars will cease. They expect, firstly, they expect peace in regions. Why is there still conflict all over the world? Why is the Middle East just a hub for wars and conflict and death? If your Jesus is who you say he is, the Prince of Peace, why then? Why? Is he, A, not able? Is this Jesus that you call the Prince of Peace actually not who you say he is? He's not God. He's not all powerful. Therefore, we still have wars. Is he? Or B, does he not care? Does your Prince of Peace only come to a certain region? And, and only to these people? This nation? Interesting. So they're expecting peace in regions of the world. So then Jesus, thankfully, has helped people, helped us with our expectations about war. What do we expect of Jesus coming as the Prince of Peace? Should we expect when he came the first time for wars to cease? Well, he made it very clear. Matthew 24, he says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and you will see and not be alarmed, for this must take place, for the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. and all these are the beginnings of the birth pains. And they will and speaking of Christians, and two Christians, and they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. and, they will, and then many will fall away and betray one another, they'll hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead people astray. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to these nations. And then the end will come. So he's saying, until that time, until the end will come, he tells you, expect wars. Expect rumors of wars. Expect that there will be tribulation. That people will put you to death for your faith. That you will be hated by nations. You go to certain countries in the world. You tell them you're a Christian. You won't be let in you'll be hated by nations. So Jesus told you what to expect. He told us what to expect. And so when you have neighbors and friends who expect this Jesus to have solved the world war issue, then they don't know his expectations. It's likely because they're biblically illiterate. They've never read the Bible. They've never had anybody sit down with the Bible and say, Did you know actually Jesus told us not to expect peace in this world? That he told us to expect it to get worse? Do you realize that, dear friends? So they have this false expectation, but Jesus made it clear. Don't expect something that I said would never happen in the way you're anticipating it. They expect peace in regions. Secondly, they expect peace in religion. The people expect everyone to just get along. There's this bumper sticker. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It says coexist. It's all just different religion symbols. So it's got the, the crest of Islam. It's got the peace symbol. Uh, it's got, um, I don't know, yin-yang. It's got all these things. And it's got the Christian cross at the end. Coexist. Oh, the Star of David's in there. It's basically, hey, just get along. All religions are okay. All religions are the same. They all leave the same place. It's, that's the gospel of Oprah Winfrey. She says the same thing. Everything's good. Just embrace it all. It's all going to get you the final destination to God. As long as you're pursuing him, right? coexist is this idea that there should be peace in religion just get along with someone else who disagrees with you because they have their thing you have yours it's all the same in the end they expect that that's what this god of love does and jesus being a loving guy should just hey yeah you're fine in your religion you're fine but as you understand jesus you begin to go well that's not what he told us to expect the God who made us, created us, and who is the keeper of heaven, he told us there's no such thing as coexisting as religions. That there is a single way of truth. That you get to a fork in the road and you can either go right or left. You can't go both. Two things cannot be true. It's true or false. So people expect peace in religion. And they also expect peace in relationships. People expect that that this Jesus is going to come and that there's going to be no more conflict with my neighbor. There's going to be no more conflict in this world because Jesus is here. And we all expect that. We would love that. We would long for that in so many of our families that are filled with conflict. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if, when Jesus came his first time, that, that part of his coming would be that our families would be wonderful? There would be no more turmoil at family get-togethers. We would expect peace in relationships because isn't that who God is? A relational God who cares about family? Here he says, I have come to bring fire on earth, verse 49, and I wish that we're already kindled. And I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed. But do not think that I have come to bring peace. No, I tell you, division. So what is it about Jesus' first advent, his first arrival, his first coming? What is it that brings division? If, if everybody's anticipating peace, what is it that he says will bring division? Why doesn't he bring peace yet? Or does he? Why doesn't he bring peace yet? Or does he? Of course, you must understand the purpose of Jesus' coming. He The eternal God took on flesh, the eternal Son of God took on flesh in order that in flesh like you and like me, he might stand as our representative, that he might live the way that you and I were originally designed to live, to image God, to be a perfect representation of God among the creatures of this earth, and secondly, to glorify God, to be for him and for his fame, and third, to enjoy God, that's what we were made for image God, to glorify God and enjoy God. So Christ came embodied in flesh and he lived that way. He came to image God, to show God perfectly what he was like morally, how he'd make decisions, what it was like to have a relationship with God. And he did everything for the glory of God. He was not concerned about his own pain or the own temptations he would go through. He was concerned first and foremost for the glory of God. Will this Rob God of fame, or will it give him the adoration he's due? And thirdly, he lived to enjoy God. He enjoyed deep fellowship with his Father as an example for us while he's on earth. But he didn't just come to set the shining example of something that you and I could never get. He also didn't just walk around as some guru with his hands together. When, when he walked by you humming that you just got these tingly feelings. He didn't just come to bring you some imaginary peace. Instead, he was the Jesus you could not ignore. You could not ignore this Jesus. If someone interacted with Jesus, they would see Jesus, hear Jesus, experience Jesus, it would bring division. It would bring division. There's only two options when you would meet Jesus. He came, he says, to bring fire. What does that even mean? I have come to bring fire on earth. Verse 49. Speaking of suffering. Persecution. Trials. Fire. Fire. He came that there would be division. So what is this division? What is this drawing line that is opposite of peace? Well, we know that he came. And he is the gospel. But what is the gospel? You know, we say it's good news. But. Is it good news for all, those who want to continue to reject God and walk apart from God? Well, it's not. And so the gospel presents you with a dividing line. Accept or reject. Be his or not be his. It's dividing. The gospel, as much as it is a gospel of love and of reconciliation and of joy and of forgiveness, it is a gospel that divides. You cannot come face to face with the gospel of Christ and coexist. The sheep and the wolves. You can't actually be the same thing, so there is a dividing line. And Jesus Himself many times shows us this dividing line, where He says, "I will separate the sheep from the goats. Those on the left, those on the right." He says, "When people will come to Me one day," Matthew seven says that you know everyone will say, "Lord, Lord," and He'll say, "I never knew you, but I knew you. Come on in, welcome into, the, enter into the rest of My Father, and you depart from Me." It's a dividing line. Jesus came to bring division. You were his and at peace with him when he arrived. Because that's the greatest need that every person has. The greatest need that every person has is not that wars in the region will stop. It is not that division in religion will stop. It's not that conflicts in family or marriage will stop. But the greatest peace we need is between God and man. So Christ came to bring peace in that sense. But in the world, on earth, it caused a huge division. Either you were for God or against Him. Either you were with Christ or against Christ. Either you loved Him or you rejected Him. He came to divide. So peace as harmony is only in Christ. So, therefore, if a nation of people is full of people who hate Christ, who walk apart from Christ, with a nation of people who majority represent Christ, there's never going to be peace. There won't be peace in the nations. There won't be peace in religions where one rejects Christ and one lives for Christ. There will never be peace or harmony in religions. And in relationships, same thing, or families. We would long for reconciliation and turmoil to be gone, but but you're two different people. That's why the Bible warns people before they're married. If you're in a relationship with someone and you love Jesus and they don't, don't marry them. Because marriage is a ministry, and you can't do ministry with someone who doesn't believe in the God you serve. So don't do it. It tells people that. Because there is a division. He is not coming to bring peace with anyone who is wanting to walk in opposition to him. They're not going to be at peace with those who are his. It's interesting though. Because if they are in Christ, he does bring peace. It's amazing. He he brings uh, peace uh, and and we know it from Revelation. When we see the end, he brings peace in the nations. He says this. John speaking of what he saw. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could even number. From every nation and all the tribes and all the peoples of the lands and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Crying out with a one loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. So there will be peace among the nations. For those in Christ. that's, That's one day. One day we will sit with every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people group singing the praise of God, united together at his throne. United. When even now, you may have someone, a brother or sister who lives in Saudi Arabia. And our nation is at war with their nation. We don't have a good relationship. But Christ, and in Christ's people, he does bring harmony between the nations. Even now, not just one day when we get to glory and we get to worship with our brothers and sisters, but even now, he took away a dividing line between nations. There was this division. There was hostility. There was a, a conflict between Jew and Greek, between uh, Jew and Gentile. Galatians three twenty eight says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All of these dividing lines, demographics, nations, age categories, races. He says, there's harmony. There's harmony between you. And it's not some false harmony. But no, you are all one in Christ. So in that sense, he does bring peace on earth in, in regions, among different peoples. He also, when thinking about religion, when the world says, well, just coexists. Well, he brings people from all sorts of spiritual journeys to one place. Because he said in John 14, well-known verse, I am the way. The way. He's the way. There's no way to, to coexist with that through another route to the Father. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, singular.'" And so, if you enter by this way, then you're in relationship not only with him, but with your brothers and sisters. I love what it says in Acts chapter 9. It tells us of peace among uh, Christians, of peace among people. It says, so the church through all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. And it was being built up. And it was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. So there was peace. There was peace. There is peace. And it's in the churches of God. There is peace in religion. It's when we come through the way of Christ that we can actually be united with a neighboring church and a neighboring community who loves the Lord and who serves on mission for Christ. Now, of course, this is not always the case. Even among like-minded churches, even within the same church, there's not always peace because local churches are made up of people like you and like me. We're still sinners. We're still selfish. We're still self-focused. We don't live perfectly as we ought to, but oftentimes we need the rebuke that the Corinthian church got. Because the Corinthian church was quite a divided church. Paul rebuked them strongly. He says, basically, there was quarreling uh, among you. In in 1 Corinthians 1 it tells us, there's quarreling among you, my brothers. When when some of you say, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And there's there's some uh, disunity among you. In 2 Corinthians, he says, For I fear perhaps that when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you may not find me as you wish. And perhaps there will be quarreling, and jealousy, and anger, and hostility, and slander, and gossip, and conceit, and disorder. That's possible in the church because of our sinfulness. But he says at the end of 2 Corinthians, Finally, brothers, rejoice aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. You see, within the church of Christ, peace is possible when we have one mind, as it were, when we are not insisting on our own way, when we are humbled. We want to live together centered around Christ. We have unity in him. There we can share a relative harmony, relative peace. It's imperfect, but yes, it's a taste of what's to come. What about in relationship? Is it possible for there to be peace in our relationships now? Jesus tells us a, a general proclamation, we're told that we should pursue what makes for peace. If at all possible, you are to pursue what makes for peace. Don't just go out to uh, tick people off. Pursue what makes for peace. And in the church specifically, in Romans 12, it tells us, live in harmony with one another. So then, is it possible to have areas of our lives where this peace does actually come? Even now, in the first advent, we know Christ has not yet come Uh, again. Can we have this peace? The question is, what area of your life do you expect peace? Do you expect harmony? What what are you hoping for from Christ? We all have turmoil, right? There's, there's always some sort of upset, some sort of discontentment in, in each of our hearts. Um, are you anticipating Christ to come? Or are you just expecting something else to solve the problem? Well, you know, if we, I don't have peace in my relationship because X, Y, or Z. Let me fix X, Y, or Z, and it'll be good. I don't have peace in my extended family. I just need to maybe not talk as much, or I need to um, say different things, or how am I going to make a peace with my family? Well, the way you do is by seeing them come to Christ, and you can live in unity. And so it's hard, because we can't make a person come to Christ. Christ comes to bring division. You preach the gospel, and if they don't desire him, they're going to walk further from you. Christ is expected. It's part of living for me. It's part of living with me. But if you are expecting peace in an area of your life and you long for it, then let me, let others pray with you about it. If there's an area of your life where there's turmoil, there's discontent, don't let it carry on. Thinking, oh, well, peace is coming one day. Will it? The only way peace comes is through Christ and through a relationship with Christ. That's our greatest need of peace. That is every person's greatest need. Is to be made right with God. And so then, we pray. Because only God can do it. Only God is able to transform a, heart of, a hard heart, a heart of stone. And it cause them to be at peace with Him. All the hostility, all the war between us and God is reconciled through Christ's first coming. Through His first advent. He... Stood before the Father as one who was hostile. Think about that. Christ stood before the Father as one who was hostile. Almost as though he hated the Father. That is unthinkable when you read how much Christ loved the Father. How much unity there is in the Trinity. How much they love one another. Are of one mind. Are so harmonious. The most and greatest and perfect harmony is in the Trinity, but yet, for the sake of you being at peace with God, Christ the Son took on your sin, took on your hatred for God, your hostility to God, and stood before God at war with Him, the Father, and and at war with Him, so that if you're found in Christ, you may be at peace with God. It's an amazing thing for you to experience, for me to experience, that the cost that Christ accepted for us and the only way that people will ever be made right with one another, is to have this, this hostility dealt with in their own hearts. This brokenness between you and God dealt with, and it's only dealt with by Christ standing in your place. Hostile to God. So that God's anger could pour out and that wage war on your sin. And to be paid in full. That's the gospel. But that gospel is hard. It's a gospel that is divisive. That's why Christ came. I did not come, he says, to bring peace. Just to bring this this false sense of peace. This what you expect to be peace. And ceasing of wars. I didn't come to bring that. I came to reconcile men to God. People who are at war with God. I came to bring that in their hearts. But you expect something else. You have false expectations of me this first time. I will do something greater. Something much more lasting. Something of eternal value. I'll do it. I'll do it through Christ. I want to finish by this quote by J.C. Ryle. He said, Let us thank God that one day there will be no more divisions on earth. But all will be of one mind. This will happen when Jesus, the Prince of Peace, comes again in person. And puts every enemy under his feet. When Satan is bound. When the wicked are separated from the righteous. And cast down to their own place. Then and not until then. Will there be perfect peace. So let us wait. Watch and pray. For that blessed time. For the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Our divisions are but for a short time. And our peace is for eternity. Let's pray. God, you are perfect in all of your ways. You're majestic. You are unapproachable in your holiness, in your majesty. You deserve more than you ever get in terms of praise. Not only from the heavens declaring your glory, but from our feeble lips. God, you deserve so much praise. Your worth is infinite. And yet, God, we in our sinfulness have been hostile towards you. We've waged war with you. We've fought with you. We've said no to you. We've said other things are better than you and more important than you and, and deserve more of our time than you. Oh God, what what an awful heart that we have. But we are not at peace with you. And, and so, God, without Christ. We would be so lost. We would be trying to figure out a way of peace. We would be expecting peace where there is no peace. We're so thankful that Christ the Son came. In his first coming he came. Not to bring peace as the world would expect. But to bring peace in the hearts of men. Who would be reconciled with you. That he would stand in our place. So that we could be standing as him. Ones who would live for you perfectly. We would be for your glory. We would enjoy you forever. God, we thank you for this gospel. This gospel that is of love and forgiveness and of reconciliation. God, and we pray. We pray for our own hearts to be at peace with you. To be made right through Jesus. God, help us to see where we idolize things of this life that we believe will bring us peace. Help us to show them how wrong they are, how empty they are. Let us look only to Christ. Those of us who have been Christians for how many years, God, let us again and again look to Christ. Bring our discontentment to Christ. Bring our, our disillusionment to Christ. Bring our wrong expectations to Christ. Bring our, uh, our catastrophes to Christ and our families. Let us bring them to Christ. And just leave them there, trusting that you are perfect in all of your ways, God. If, if we, ourselves, if there's anyone who, who knows that they are at war with God in this moment, do they not surrender? Do they are continuing to fight? They continue to sin. They continue to look you in the face and say, "You are not worthy of my life." God, to pray in this moment that you would crush their hearts. You'd show them their need of you, their need of reconciliation that will never come apart from Jesus. God, help them to just see Christ is coming for them, living for them, dying for them, to be accepted for them. God, we love your gospel. We want to be people who not only love it, but we live it. So help us, oh God, to be shining examples of what it means to be at peace with you. Help us to be holy. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.